You're listening to 247 Real Talk. I'm your host, Julian Perry, along with my guest for this episode, Dr. Barbara Campbell. We will be discussing how the coronavirus has magnified the healthcare disparity in black and brown communities. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, knowing that you wrote your dissertation on an aspect of uh, healthcare and the disparity in the black and brown community. Thank you for joining me. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Mr. Perry. You're quite welcome. So as we start off this conversation, we know that a, a few things that we learned during the, during the height of the coronavirus and that is that things like testing sites and things like availability to black and brown communities were really neglected. And those were the communities like, uh, especially in New York City, like uh, Far Rockaway and many parts of Queens and the Bronx that were are predominantly black and brown that had the highest number of coronavirus cases per capita and yet the least amount of access to health care or response from the healthcare community. Absolutely, absolutely. And the central theme here is access. And access addresses all aspects of the, uh, aspects of the African-American experience. When we talk about healthcare disparities, we're really looking really at the social determinants of healthcare disparities. And uh, having been someone who actually teach in that area and something that has been plaguing the African-American community, minorities as a whole. And the aspects I'm talking about are the economic uh, instabilities, um, unemployment rates, income disparities. Uh, when you look at the housing, the housing are usually substandard uh, overcrowding, which uh, was one of the, the um, aspects of the, the spread in the inner city uh, communities, people of color. Uh, what was quite significant is that many African-Americans, and especially male, are employed in the healthcare system and um, tend to do uh, the blue-collar work in terms of transportation, uh, security guards, um, dietary, housekeeping, and initially, when they had the COVID outbreak, the focus was on getting the healthcare, the direct frontliners, the doctors, the nurses, anesthesiologists, all the, the, the frontline folks, as it was defined at that time, um, to get their protect, protective uh, equipment first in place before looking at the other tier, the supportive staff. And now they're looking at the uh, the death rate of they call them the invisible warriors because they are part of the healthcare system, critical part of the healthcare system. There was an example of um, the ER. That's a hot spot, and yet there might have been security guards in that area who were not provided with masks. 
patients who died in, in, in COVID, in rooms where COVID patients work taken care of, those rooms have to be clean before another patient comes in. Who does that? The housekeeping. So it took them a while to realize that all uh, providers within the healthcare environment needed protection, needed protection. And yes, it um, kind of came upon us like a thief in the night. And by the time they realized it, then we had lost quite a few people in the auxiliary staff of healthcare settings. Mm. Again, the grocery stores, the, um, the bus drivers, essential services, who, people who did not have the, the, the um, opportunity to work from home, they have to be out there on the front line. So naturally, um, we find that many in those positions are minority folks. Why? Because, again, inequities in terms of education, food insecurity, um, social en- engagement, the discrimination. It's a hundred-year problem that has been uh, plaguing the healthcare system, trying to find solutions. How do we decrease it? How do we eliminate it? It, it even it appears to be... Um, it's almost impossible if we do not get to the root of it. Do you understand what I'm saying, Mr. Perry? Yes, yes. I, um, I, I mean, it's, it's, it was very evident, even from the layman onlooker, um, as time went by and we looked at the numbers, et cetera. It, it didn't matter whether you were a healthcare worker, as long as you were within that community, um, you're, you were seen to be more exposed and have less access to remediation as in other communities. Um, I totally agree with you that a lot of the jobs that you described are predominantly uh, minorities, black and brown people, and the focus was never on them. And it, it, it was also very evident that when when they found out what was really going on and there was a need for testing which you know came came along at a point where we had lost thousands of lives that even then the focus was not on the black and brown uh, communities and i mean if you looked at uh, you know at a map and you looked at, at the geography of it common sense would have said that you know here are your hot spots here are your you know the the places that you need to concentrate the efforts because this is where your your epicenter or your or your mini epicenters are, and yet there was no focus on it. I mean, I heard news conferences by you know um, the, both the mayor and the governor of New York City later on that referred to things like, oh yeah, you know we 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 found out that you know this is going on in these communities and we have to do some studies to understand why and and that. Um, was was a, to me a, a, just a statement to pacify because I don't think in this day and age we need to do studies. As you said, um, this is a known problem for a long time, and it wasn't until people started, uh, you know, making their voices heard and kind of bringing it to the spotlight, and it, and it started to become an embarrassment for the officials that they responded. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we have already reiterated that um, it's an enduring problem, and until 
we um, change policies, uh, improve access uh, in terms of all the different determinants that I discussed in education, in literacy, early childhood. Um, it is really f fundamental that if you have these, these uh, uh, communities that are lacking in terms of access to mainstream help, then they're going to be the most vulnerable, most vulnerable. And even when supplies came to the city and to cities, uh, uh, states around the country, the, the, the supplies did not go to the, the, the inner city, the urban um, hospitals at the, the, at the, um, the rate at which you get it in the urban hospitals. And we saw that disparity, even as a healthcare worker, we saw where hospitals in certain regions had abundance of, of, of um, supplies. I actually worked in, uh, served in one of these um, urban, uh, these um, more, what would I say, affluent facility, and nothing was lacking. Whereas if you go to the other side of town, they're struggling. I actually had a student who was, um, and still is, works as a home, home, um, home health aide. And she said she was given one N95 mask for five days. And by the time the ship was over, I mean, that mask, she had sweated in it so much, it was useless. Nurses would have to, like, slip, slip them an extra N95 mask. Who are the people who are working in those capacities? Uh, capacities? They're also brown and black people. Brown and black people. Where's the hospital? Again, in the inner city in the inner city. So this really um, magnifies something that has been lacking. And health disparities is not only unique to New York City or the United States. It's really globally. It's globally. It's across the, all, um, all countries that has the, um, the differences in terms of uh, rural versus urban, developed versus developing countries. And um, the problem, as I said, is an enduring one and has been um, existing for quite some time. Uh, one thing that I do and others who teach in, in the area that I do is uh, educate students on health disparities, in, on health disparities, and bring to their attention the unconscious and the conscious biases that actually exist in terms of how minorities interface with physicians, and physicians uh, do not look like them. And there is a video that I use in, in, in my class, um, was actually prepared by a, a doctor who has done um, extensive research in health disparities, looking at intrinsic and extrinsic um, biases. And she talked about a study where the AIT test. It's a test where they actually have individuals um, intrinsic association test is the test I'm talking about. It is available online and the test is given to see how one would respond to make associations if you see a white face versus a black face. So if you're able to group certain good word with white face or bad words with black face and they have to do it at a certain speed, so you do not really have to think about it. I want to see the automatic response. And they've done it to um, 
hundreds, hundreds of, of, of and thousands of people. And what they've found out is that 70%, and this is not only doctors, 70% of individuals who have taken this test often uh, show that there's a definite bias favoring whites over blacks. So and doctors are no different. So the study was also shared with doctors because this is her area of expertise. She has been studying this area about conscious and unconscious biases. I don't think a doctor leaves his or her home each day and says, I'm not going to treat a black person um, in, in a way that is degrading. But, of course, we are aware that some of these, um, these biases are inherent. It's taught early. But what she has um, revealed through her studies, like anything else, they're deeply ingrained, but they can be unlearned. How do we unlearn it? We admit that they exist. And this is what's happening in our society now, uh, confronting racism. The well, first uh, part of really addressing it is admitting that it exists. And then the, the next question is, so what? So uh, what are so you going to If we can start that the uh, um, admitting that it exists, what comes to mind to me, you know, and it's it sticks in my mind, and it has stuck in my mind all this time is they were giving statistics every day of, and at the height of the coronavirus in New York City, I think we had almost a thousand deaths a day, and hospitalizations were at another crazy number. They had all these detailed statistics, and I find it hard to believe that the detail that they ignored was the ethnic makeup of the people who were dying and who were in the hospitals. It had to be very obvious for a number of reasons. Number one, the hospitals that they were gathering this information from all the hospitals. And to me, if you, you, you put it together on, on a chart or a graph and you look at it, you will automatically see which hospitals are reporting the highest hospitalizations and the highest deaths. And common sense at some point, if you were interested in knowing, would as, a, as an official, as a politician, would you, uh, especially in a, in a state like New York, you would say, wait a minute, what's the ethnic makeup of these people? And right, right away, they should have been able to see that you know, outside of the age group, which is the statistic they kept giving us, you know, and that's what we always heard, you know, this, this yeah. certain age, but we didn't hear this certain percentage of, of the people who are dying are black and brown, this certain percentage of the people who are hospitalized are black and brown. We never heard that. We only heard about things that, that I almost call them um, orchestrated distractions because you know, you know, yeah, 80, 80, 80, 80 years and older over make up, you know, 90% or whatever of, of the uh, deceased and the people who are on ventilators, but they never stop to say, you know, we're getting, you know, um, 80% of our, our numbers that, that, that make up the highest part of our numbers are coming out of the Bronx and, you know, and, 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 and Queens and, you know, Elmhurst and Far Rockaway. Yes. Right. So, mm-hmm. You know, and, and to me, these things had to be obvious. And I think that it was, I can't remember exactly when it was during the process, but it was someone, I think it might have been a reporter that started it, that highlighted the fact that, you know, this was going on. And then the officials were like, really? Oh, we have no testing site in, let's say, Far Rockaway? Mm-hmm. We'll get one there tomorrow. A little bit too, right. you know, too little, too late. 
little bit too late. A little bit too late. Um, I have a friend, now that this has really come to light, I have a friend who works with an organization, and what they are, have been doing is identifying through this tracing and tracking, testing and, and, and tracking, uh, identify persons who are positive, identify people who they have been exposed to, and they have contracted um, isolation, isolation uh, accommodation through hotels around the city, hotels around the city to have these individuals be quarantined for those 14 days. It has been very challenging for them because people do not like to be isolated and they've even had um, security guards to watch the elevators to keep them in place. So it is a challenging situation. So we have identified that the social determinants that um, kind of proliferate this kind of situation, the crowded housing, um, inadequate inadequate um, food, um, the healthcare system in terms of their access, the way they uh, they the the employment um, rate for this group of um, individuals are social determinants that plays into the statistics. But it's not something we can fix overnight because, as I said, it has been an enduring problem. So the, the question is, where do we go from here? Um, we can't very well provide housing immediately. So this will mean uh, policy changes. And who is going to advocate for those policy changes? You and I. It's every individual from the community level, healthcare workers, the teachers, the preachers, everyone playing a role in trying to mitigate this problem because it's real. And um, this is someone's father. This is a brother. This is someone who head of head of household. It's a child without a parent. Um, I'm, I'm I'm even concerned about what the the, the African American landscape is going to look like. After this, with so many men who have been um, who have died over the course minorities period who have died over the course of these months, and um, I'm I'm trying to be hopeful that things are occurring, but it's not going to be a quick fix. How do you feel about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I I think I agree with you, and I'll go a little further to say, you know, when we talk about fixing. The issue. There are so many different dynamics to it. Um, thinking about the fact that when you th- when you we kind of look at certain neighborhoods that are not predominantly black and brown, and it's it, it's very obvious if you were just driving through New York, you know what neighborhoods those are. The houses look different. The hospitals are are nicer. Um, mm. We established that they have better doctors, and when you look on the flip side of how all this happens, it's 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 such a deep, a much deeper conversation about the plight of black and brown people. Because if you look at what budgets are assigned, um, as as, as the, you know, they they determine what monies are going to be spent where, mm. and the flip side of that is well when the state gets money from taxes, 
you know, it gets it, for instance, from neighborhoods with a lot of home ownership, especially like in, say, Nassau County and those places where taxes are high. When right. you go to the black and brown communities, there's so much, there are more renters and less home ownership because of the, um, the economic depression, so to speak, that you don't have the same amount of money coming out, you know, in taxes, et cetera. So I think the, what what's returned to those neighborhoods is less than is returned to the neighborhoods that obviously have, have spent more. And that might seem fear, but in essence, it's not because the neighborhoods that, that, that actually are, are produce less revenue actually need the most help and the most money. You know, we, we to, to offer black and brown communities a certain level of health care, you want a certain level of, of, of expertise that's willing to go into those hospitals. You want to, you know, it's, it's a sad thing when you can go to, and I have to say it, I am myself, um, I'm part of, of, of that experience because I don't, I lived close to a hospital and whenever I've had to go to a hospital, I don't go there. I go, you know, right. 45 minutes away to a whole different neighborhood, a whole different um, neighborhood in everything, ethnicity, uh, you know, um, affluence, the whole night. And the hospital is way better, cleaner, better equipment, you know, a ton of doctors, you know, and then and you go to the hospitals in the, in the inner cities within, in the middle of the black and brown communities and you go to the ER and you, you wait for so many hours that, you know, it, it, it's ridiculous. You know, Absolutely. It all comes down to access. All comes down to access. And, you know, you've heard the term knowledge is power. And the power of education um, definitely will, will determine the, um, the access that one will have. And when I did my dissertation, looking at the numbers of African-American males in the college, you know, my dissertation was missing in action, African-American males. And I consider that uh, there are the community colleges, open access. Why is it that African-American males have not taken advantage of this opportunity? And what I learned from, from this experience, again, because of the um, social inequities, uh, for some, it was the power of the parental influence, many were a single head of a household, so parents have tried to keep food on the table. So invariably what happens sometimes, the young male graduating high school may feel, okay, I got to help mom, um, you know, put some food on the table as well. And then education, uh, pursuing education was not um, first and foremost on their mind. Uh, the experience they have in terms of along the academic pipeline, the significant people, as we're talking about inequities, it's the same thing that happens in school system. Less guidance counselors, less um, it, uh, significant people can really speak power into their lives and to, to encourage them. People who can help them navigate. How do you make a transfer? We take things for granted that um, a high school graduate knows exactly how to access, access a college situation. And I've discovered that is not necessarily so without proper guidance teacher influence, as I said, transitional support, um, financial aid. Again, it goes right down to money again. Financial aid, um, the 
the the, the understanding is that they're going to be in lower income areas, then maybe their peers are might not be as motivated. Um, the struggles that they face because they're just basically trying to survive. And it goes right back to money. Money needs to be put into, it's an economic struggle. It's an economic struggle. But I think the, money has to be put in yeah. the, um, the black communities, money into their school, the library system. We have, yes, we have seen some um, transformation of some of the inner city libraries, but we are a long way off. I even looked at um, my, my children going to school in, in Nassau County versus when I lived in Queens, and so the younger one is preparing for regions and all the resources that were available to him were not available to the two older children in, in Queens. It's a reality. As you said, the allocation of funds is somehow um, cut short. And if the school system is not well resourced with all the, the um, supplies and support system, then you won't get the better teachers in those areas either if they cannot attract people to um, teach, teach your minority kids. So they enter school with a lower social capital, again, because it's, just, it's, it's rooted in economic empowerment, in um, racism. We have to call it what it is. Call it what it is. And um, as you have said, the, uh, hospitals are substandard. I have been working as a nurse for more than 30 years. I've done, worked in many different facilities as agency nurse. So I've gone to different boroughs and I see what what is available to um, the brown and black people. Well, yeah. And the thing about this, you know, thinking about as you were saying, as you were speaking, um, I think a, a lot of people have mentioned this to me and I mentioned it in the previous podcast. One killer for a lot of today's youth that we're trying to empower and, and uplift is student loans. And, yeah. you know, I think that that is such an unnecessary impediment. We're not living, and as many people would know, especially anyone you know, comes from, say, the Caribbean and other countries in the world where if you're from that country, your education is free all the way through university. And, you know, in many cases, those smaller countries can't support the amount of graduates and many of them migrate to the United States. And so this country gets the benefit of, of you know, all the people who migrate already educated and ready to be a part of building this society. Mm-hmm. Right. And then mm-hmm. you have, you know, the people who go to school here, it would be so easy for for this society this country as a whole to say look when you graduate you have to give back like other countries do x amount of years of service whether it be you know um however they want to design the community service something like that that helps to build us as a society instead it creates such an impediment because when we when we talk about black and brown again there is very little to zero guarantee that for, except for a few specific fields, and, and healthcare may be one of that in terms of a doctor, but many other fields where you qualify and 
it may be a competitive field and the education ends up leaving you with two, three hundred thousand dollars in student loans. And then you go out there and you can't equally compete for this job that can allow you to afford to pay it back because of the color of your skin. And so you end up working for a job with lesser income and that struggle, you know, it, it, it never seems to go away. And in the meantime, of course, they're adding interest to your student loans. So when I speak to a lot of younger people today and I say, you're going to college, they say, I, and they say no. And I'm, I, 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 you know, my next question is why? And of course, many of them, the answer is I, I can't deal with those student loans. And so where do they go? They go out with the, the high school education, which these days is, is, is a necessary stepping stone, but its value without college is very little and the jobs you can get never allow them to, you know, to climb the ladder and live, their, live to their full potential because we have a system that is designed to suppress them, you know, and, and, and we have to be honest about this. They're, I have friends of every race, creed, or color, and if I were to look at it honestly, many of them who are not brown or black have had the advantage of either having wealthy parents or what we call old money or someone that old money. You're right mm-hmm. so to pays off their, so when they leave college their 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 debt is zero and mm-hmm. you know it's it, it is we are such a rich country we're such a country that offers aid and monetary aid to so many other countries around the world we make so many deals with other countries around the world we print money and send it to other countries around the world um, you know, in, in 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 the art of the deal or whatever. Yet, we don't we don't say, you know what? Let's build our own. Let's take this burden off of our people. Let's wipe this out. Because bottom line is, not only can we afford it, but I think everyone would sign on the dotted line if you said, look, I'll wipe out your student loans tomorrow. You're gonna give me five years worth of X amount of hours per year or whatever of community service in these certain areas to help build and help educate and help lift the next generation or to help in an area in society that needs uplifting mental health. You know, you know, um, there's just so many areas. There's so many, you know, absolutely. A matter of fact, I hate to interrupt. But a matter of fact, I'm saying, um, we're actually paying, paying for this um, messed up system. We're paying. How are we paying? There's increased crime. Increased unemployment, increased addiction, increased mental illness. So we're all paying because the system is designed. So two persons were having a conversation um, and uh, one said to the other, you know, the system has to be fixed. And the other said, there's nothing wrong with it. It is perfectly designed and orchestrated to run just the way you have just described it. Yeah, just and, the way you have described it, and, absolutely. And, and while I know we started off focusing on healthcare, I think this is such an important conversation because, as we speak, more things come to mind. And one of the things that I also want to mention is, you know, again, here we are, richest country in the world, arguably the richest country in the world, and in in, in an effort to help people through a pandemic. Now that is as bad as it can get, healthcare wise. And they gave people a $1,200 check per person in the household. 
And all of these programs that they called so-called helping people, many of them suspended payments for people who were already struggling to meet their payments. And at the end of this all, whether it be coming September or whatever, now that money is all due. But people have lost their jobs by the, by the I think the number's in the millions right now that have lost their jobs. There's, there's, there's no job to give them immediately when we come out of this. And, and so what you've done, and again, because this affects people who already were struggling economically, you've just buried them deeper in, 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 into the mud. And again, this is black and brown communities. How do you, I mean, the, 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 not just the effort, the, the overwhelming doom, so to speak, when you, when you have to look at that picture and, and, and try to determine how does the person who how was struggling... How are we going to recover? Yeah. How are we going to recover? Let's think about it for a second. The person who was struggling in the beginning, who might have been going to school part-time because they were paying out of their pocket because they couldn't score student loans. They were a minority. They were working a job in the meantime. It didn't pay much. You know, they had rent to pay. They had all these bills to pay. They lost their job. And you have, you know, unemployment that really can't meet the bills. And then you're expecting somehow, you know, as they say, you know, we, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. And then, you know, abracadabra, we go back to normal. And you, you know, what you've done is in many ways, They've the any allowed the progress that was made in black and brown communities has now been set back years within three months because Absolutely. we know who is in the struggle. We know if we looked at it honestly and we looked at the, the, the demographic, we know who are the people who are going to be in this struggle and then where do they end up? Some end up through through whatever means of desperation. You got jail. You got death, you got suicide, you got homelessness. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then somebody comes up, some rich person comes up with a brilliant idea of some program to help you. Too much, or not too much, but too little, too late. So too late. one of the reasons that I think it's so important, because I do have other topics on my, on, uh, on my podcast, uh, mm -hmm. but this is such an important conversation to have right now because of, all of the aspects, and I, and I stress to my listeners that even though I've done episodes on George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks, that is absolutely has been the catalyst for this current movement. But we need to make sure now that we widen the conversation so we start to be inclusive of all the dynamics that affect black and brown communities. And we, 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 we stay on this and we, we shine a spotlight on it and we we scream at the top of our voices to those who need to hear. And if they refuse to hear, we use the power of unity to force them to hear, to make changes. You know, this, this whole thing about the reforms that they're making to, let's say, hypothetically, the, the, the police department because of what happened. Okay, we should not use that. that okay, now you've been pacified and you know what? You know, go away. No. This is not that is only end. one aspect. Of this it. is just no, the beginning. No, that is only yes. one aspect. So that is definitely yeah. only one aspect. And just going back to health. So, how do we as healthcare providers help uh, patients when they come to the hospital? 
you know, as an instructor for nursing students, we teach them about advocacy. We uh, definitely have to make them be aware that you have to be that voice for that patient who might be intimidated. You have to be that voice who teaches that patient about uh, health promotion, uh, uh, better, better lifestyle choices, and knowing that they cannot do it alone, but also referring them to the relevant social, social services that uh, they need. And again, as you said, it's advocacy all the way, advocacy for more funding, um, it, the, the um, disparities in terms of, of allocation of funds is, is really pervasive at all levels. And the, the march has to continue. We, we, we have to join forces. Uh, we have to be our brother's keeper and we have to keep the, the, the foot on, on the pedal. We cannot let up. We cannot let up because this is going to be pandemonium. As you said before, how are you going to dig out of this hole when people are threatened for eviction and losing their homes? There's so many children who, who are un, um, in homeless situations. That means their education is compromised. They're vulnerable. They're exposed to too much being in shelters. It is definitely a crisis situation, and it's all our problems. It is for each and us, each and every one of us to really put our heads together. Um, it's churches, it's schools, the teacher, the preacher, um, the lawmaker, the, 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 the activist, you know, everyone has to come together for this power of change and, and we cannot let up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I know that, um, as we, as we wrap up this episode, I know that, um, we need to not only continue to lend our voices to the conversation, but use all mediums and all avenues we have to get the word out there, to have others join us in the conversation. And it has to be a larger conversation so that the voices are heard in unity and the, the issues are highlighted and change, even if it's one step at a time has to come. So, um, I'm definitely looking forward to having uh, additional conversations with you. I thank you so much for uh, coming on the, on the show. And um, I really do hope that you would agree to come back and, and continue the conversation another time. But thank you so much. Uh, Mr. Perry, on this journey together, we're all in this together. Um, this has to be our charge. This has to be our commitment. This is, we are our brother's keeper. As people of faith, as people of faith, this is our commitment. This is what God says when he said, go into all the world. The commission is not only to win people to Christ, but to um, empower our, our brothers and our sisters to be our brother's keeper. And each of us have a voice. We are in, in different sphere of um, contact and um, to really put our efforts together to spread the word, expand the conversation, as you said. And it's been a pleasure uh, doing this podcast with you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode.
So as I usually do, I want to say a special thank you to all my listeners out there for your continued support. I thank you for all of you who let me know that you're listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all the other apps that are your favorites. Reminding you that you can go to the website to www.247realtalk.net and catch up with all those uh, episodes that you missed and learn more information about this podcast. Until we meet again, take care of yourselves and each other.